Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. Appendix 2, Episode 5, The White Doe. Welcome to the final episode of Appendix 2. We spent the first four episodes in the 2nd century BC, covering the fiery wars that started burning when the Romans arrived and then just never seemed to go out. Although Hispania was one of the first overseas territories claimed by the Romans, it was among the last to be fully pacified. But after the sack of Numantia in 133 BC, the Iberian Peninsula entered a long period of relative peace. Now, it was never entirely peaceful, and in subsequent decades, Roman magistrates in Hispania would wrestle with organized banditry and the occasional small revolt, but there were no major insurrections. So for this last episode, we're going to zoom forward 50 years to talk about the next major insurrection. And if you're wondering how things went for Rome in the intervening 50 years, I highly recommend reading The Storm Before the Storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. And this episode will in fact act as a sort of double epilogue, both wrapping up Appendix 2 and also wrapping up the last phase of the Civil War that occupied the final chapter of The Storm Before the Storm, because we have come here today to talk about Quintus Sertorius. Quintus Sertorius was born around 123 BC in the city of Nursia, which was a mountainous community of central Italy and a traditional home of the Sabines. His father died early, and Sertorius was raised principally by his mother, with whom all the sources report he was especially close to. As a member of the provincial equestrian class, young Sertorius received a decent education in law and became a tolerably good orator, but he was not destined for fame in the forum. Sertorius excelled at physical activities, and as soon as he was old enough, he joined the legions. But after signing up for service at the age of 18, Sertorius was nearly swallowed by the anonymous and bloody maw of history. He was assigned to the legion sent to stop the Cimbri from entering Italy in 105 BC, and so Sertorius fought at the cataclysmic Battle of Arausio. But by some miracle, Sertorius managed to survive, and he is in fact one of the few named survivors of that particular disaster. He was able to make his way to the Rhone River and swim to the other side without drowning. Now, unlike, say, me, who probably would have gone home, shut the door, and never picked up a sword again after barely escaping from such a horrendous massacre, Sertorius stayed enlisted in the legions. He served in Gaul under Gaius Marius during Marius's run of consecutive consulships, and Sertorius was often deployed as a spy to gather intelligence from neighboring Gallic communities as Marius attempted to rebuild Roman prestige in the region. Now, there's no further record of his exploits, but I think it's safe to assume that Sertorius fought at both the Battle of Aquae Sextiae and the Battle of the Raudian Plain. We also know that he stayed in the legions after the defeat of the Cimbri, because after ten years of service, he was elected military tribune and sent off to serve in further Spain, getting his first look at the country that would later become all but synonymous with his name. Now harboring political ambitions, Sertorius won a quaestorship for the year 90, which, as we know, was a year of major crisis in Italy. The social war had just broken out a few months earlier, and every single magistrate elected for the year 90 was assigned to service somewhere on the Italian peninsula. Sertorius drew the province of Cisalpine Gaul. By all accounts, he succeeded brilliantly at turning Cisalpine Gaul into a reliable source of supplies for the legions as they grappled with the insurrectionary Italians, and it's pretty clear that his skills as a leader and an organizer were already on full display. 
Sertorius emerged from the social war with an excellent reputation and planned to run for a tribunate in the election of 88 BC. But this was a particularly crazy election because it was the one that took place immediately after Sulla's first march on Rome. As you might recall from the storm before the storm, Sulla wanted to prove that he wasn't a tyrant. So when the elections began, he refused to put his finger on the scales, neither supporting nor hindering anyone's candidacy. But for one major exception, Sulla blocked Sertorius from being elected tribune. Now, Plutarch notes this as the root of Sertorius's hatred of Sulla, but I personally have a hard time believing that this is the full story. Sulla's reason for blocking Sertorius is never given, but he does go out of his way to say basically, everyone whose candidacy I'm not going to mess with, take one step forward. Oh, not so fast, Sertorius. Well, that says to me that there must have been some kind of history between them, history that may have gone back to their service together under Marius in Gaul. Unfortunately, our sources are silent on that particular detail. But we do know for sure that after his candidacy was blocked by Sulla, Sertorius became one of Sulla's staunchest enemies. So I'm going to breeze through the next couple of years because I did chronicle all of this in pretty good detail in the final chapters of The Storm Before the Storm. Sertorius then partnered with Cinna and Marius. They all recaptured Rome together. Sertorius intervened to stop the Marian reign of terror. And then when Sulla came back from the east, Sertorius was among those counseling strong and uncompromising resistance. He opposed trying to talk things out with Sulla, and he believed that behind Sulla's soothing words lurked dangerous venom. And he no doubt agreed with Papirius Carbo's assessment that in fighting the fox and the lion in Sulla, that he preferred the lion. After the deaths of Marius and Cinna, Sertorius was elected praetor in 83 BC, in one of the last elections before Sulla recaptured Rome, and he was given either nearer or further Spain as his provincial assignment, though the sources are not clear which one it actually was. Growing disillusioned with his fellow anti-Sullen generals and despairing that they would ever be able to win the war in Italy, Sertorius resolved to lead his army to Spain, raise more men, and continue the war from the periphery of the empire. So in mid-82 BC, he departed Italy for Hispania. He would never return. Shortly after his arrival on the Iberian Peninsula, Sertorius learned that Sulla had won the Battle of the Coline Gate, and for all intents and purposes, the civil war was over. Sertorius attempted to hold Hispania, and he sent 6,000 men under a loyal legate to block up the passes through the Pyrenees. But when an army led by a Sullen officer arrived, Sertorius's legate was assassinated, and most of the men under his command either gave up or ran away. I mean, who wants to be the last man left on the wrong side of a civil war? Well, as it turns out, at least a few wanted to be the last guys left on the wrong side of a civil war. So, though most of his forces abandoned ship, Sertorius was able to hunker down in New Carthage with about 3,000 men who were still loyal. With Hispania looking lost, though, Sertorius and these men boarded boats and sailed south across the Mediterranean to Mauritania. But this began a frustrating run of ping-ponging around back and forth between Spain and North Africa. Sertorius battled sullen forces on both sides of the Mediterranean in a series of adventures that I do not want to get bogged down in because they're beside the point, and also involve the convoluted domestic politics of Mauritania and the ever-shifting loyalty of Cilician pirates. The upshot is that in 80 BC, 
Sertorius accepted an invitation from a group of Lusitanians to come up and be their leader in a rebellion against the Sullen commanders, who were at that point trying to firmly reestablish their control of further Spain. Sertorius arrived in further Spain with about 2,500 legionaries and another 700 North African auxiliaries. He soon added to that a force of about 4,000 Lusitanians who were eager to pledge their service to a man who stood opposed to the current regime in Rome, probably with the idea that if they helped him back to power, it would pay huge dividends for themselves down the road. Sertorius ingratiated himself early with the Lusitanian locals, and he soon had a reputation for going light on punishment and going heavy on rewards. Men flocked to his banner. To secure the loyalty of the various tribes, Sertorius, of course, demanded hostages. That was just how things were done in those days. But he also made sure that the children who were sent to him were well-treated, and he ordered that they receive high-quality classical educations. Sertorius also proved himself to be an adroit propagandist. Shortly after his arrival, a local hunter cornered a unique white doe. The hunter decided to bring this baby deer to Sertorius as a gift. Sertorius accepted the offering, but rather than kill the white doe, Sertorius took a shine to the creature and he let it live. He announced that the animal was clearly a gift from the goddess Diana, who was now smiling favorably on all their destinies. Sertorius tamed the white doe and trained it to follow him around. It became a constant presence at his side, a visible reminder to the locals that this Roman general was favored by the gods. And then Sertorius took it a step further. When he received secret intelligence reports about the movement of the enemy, he would go out to his troops and announce the news by claiming that the information had come from his mystical communications with this sacred little white deer. Sertorius himself was thus bathed in a supernatural light that mixed his will with the divine will, and it certainly cut down on people questioning his orders. While he was securing his authority over the locals, Sertorius also welcomed thousands of refugees from Italy. The civil war was now over, but the prescriptions had only just begun, and marked men identified Sertorius's camp in further Spain as the last safe place of refuge, Pretty soon there were enough high-ranking Romans around that Sertorius started up a bona fide government in exile. He organized 300 of those prominent Roman exiles into a senate, and each year he would appoint quaestors and praetors to help him rule. So Sertorius is not going native out here. He was scrupulously maintaining the forms and hierarchies of the Roman state, possibly with the intention of eventually having this government in exile replace the current regime in Rome. And though that may have been a long shot at this point, the claims by the Sullens that the Civil War was over and that they had won decisively, well, that was contradicted by the very fact that Sertorius was still out there in the field with a Senate behind him, with questors and praetors underneath him. The Civil War was not in fact over. Sertorius was a living reminder of that fact. So the Sullen government sent magistrates to try to root out this last hive of resistance, but Sertorius was more than a match for all of them. He and a trusted lieutenant named Lucius Hertulius divided up Sertorius's armies and ran a successful joint campaign against every army sent from Rome. So what the Sullans had hoped would be a mere mop-up effort in Hispania played on as an embarrassing continuation of the Civil War. Closing out this last theater of the Civil War became so important that in 79 BC the Senate dispatched one of their most prominent members to take over. Metalus Pius. 
As you no doubt recall from the storm before the storm, Metellus Pius was the son of Metellus Numidicus, and also the great-grandnephew of Metellus Macedonicus, who we just talked about at the beginning of our last episode. Sulla himself treated Metellus Pius like an equal, and when Sulla resigned the dictatorship, he shared a consulship with Metellus Pius in 80 BC. The following year, Metellus agreed to go to Hispania to put an end to Sertorius. Upon the arrival of Metellus in Hispania, our literary sources start to assign to Sertorius the same kind of characteristics they had used to describe Viriatus. Sertorius is portrayed as living a Spartan lifestyle, drinking not at all, and showing very little interest in amassing riches for himself. Metellus, on the other hand, is described as giving himself over increasingly to easy luxury, more interested in drinking and eating than actually winning the war. Sertorius had by now moved up into nearer Spain and was reigniting the passions of the Celtiberians of the Abra River Valley, who have been so central to the story of all these Iberian wars. The conduct of the war that Sertorius waged against Metellus mirrored their contrasting characters. Metellus's armies are described as being lumbering columns, looking for one big set-piece battle to win, and mostly hoping that opposition would melt away thanks to an overwhelming show of force. Sertorius, meanwhile, was establishing himself as the patron saint of the guerrilla warrior. He embraced all the classic guerrilla techniques. It became a matter of hunted and hunter, with Sertorius as the stealthy hunter and Metellus as the lumbering prey. Sertorius's armies are light and nimble. They move fast. They engaged in hit-and-run attacks. They stuck to uneven terrain. They targeted isolated enemy units, concentrated on cutting communication and supply lines. And most importantly, they had the support of the locals, who began to see Sertorius as their defender and Metellus's legions as a great foreign invader. So the legionaries under Metellus started to become a bit disillusioned and a bit demoralized. And, just to mess with their heads, Sertorius sent in word that he was willing to rest this entire war on single combat with Metellus, knowing that Metellus would decline. And when he did, because of course he did, so would you, it made him look weak to friend and foe alike. Meanwhile, Sertorius's victories were earning him tons of new recruits every day. But many of these new recruits did not understand the finer principles of guerrilla warfare. They wanted to go launch a full frontal attack. And at one point, Sertorius got fed up with their complaints and let some of these eager beavers rush off into a full frontal attack, which Metellus's legions easily repelled. When these guys returned to Sertorius's camp, he performed an exemplary demonstration. He brought forward an obviously strong man and an obviously weak man. Then he brought out an obviously strong horse and an obviously weak horse. Matching the strong man to the weak horse and the weak man to the strong horse, he told each man to pull the tail off of each animal. The strong man tried to yank the weak horse's tail off by gathering up all the hair and just pulling at it. The weak man, on the other hand, plucked the hairs of the strong horse one by one. Now, granted this is probably animal cruelty, but Sertorius's point was made. To win a war of this kind, they must pluck, not yank. That was the key to victory. Adding to the scope and complexity of this war in Hispania, in 78 BC, the consul Lepidus launched an anti-Sullen insurrection in Italy and rallied the forces that had been defeated in the recent civil war. This uprising was quickly snuffed out, 
but in the aftermath of the rebellion's collapse, a guy named Marcus Perpenna gathered up a rather sizable army, snagged Lepidus's treasury, and made a break for Hispania, knowing that Sertorius was still out there somewhere carrying on the war. Perpenna led his men through the Pyrenees in 77 BC, but when he arrived, he surprised his men by staying aloof from Sertorius. Perpenna had a rather high opinion of himself, and he didn't want to take a backseat to Sertorius, so when he entered nearer Spain, he tried to maintain his autonomy. There would be here two equal armies now, rather than a single unified army. At least, that was the plan. But Perpenna's desire to be his own man was undermined by his own men. Word soon came from Rome that the Senate had grown impatient with Metellus, and they were sending reinforcements. Reinforcements that would be led by the young man who was fast becoming the Senate's go-to Mr. Fixit, Pompey the Great. The imminent arrival of Pompey was at first a boon to Sertorius's fortunes. The soldiers serving under Perpenna, already uncomfortable with their general's refusal to fuse the two rebel armies, threatened to mutiny and march to Sertorius's banner themselves if Perpenna refused to lead them there. The unhappy Perpenna relented and marched to Sertorius, putting himself and his army at Sertorius's command. And then when Pompey finally did come through the Pyrenees, Sertorius personally found the young general to be long on hype and short on skill. Sertorius laid a siege to a particular city, and he induced Pompey to rush on over to lift the siege. But Pompey came in so hot that he failed to notice Sertorius had placed a strong reserve army on some high ground that was now at Pompey's rear. Unable to move forward without exposing himself to a fatal attack, Pompey had to watch helplessly as the rest of Sertorius's army stormed, captured, and burned the city. It is said that Pompey was close enough that he could cook his dinner by the flames, but he could do nothing to stop the sack. Welcome to Hispania, kid. But it wasn't all good news for Sertorius. While he was introducing Pompey to Hispania, his trusted lieutenant Hirtulius continued to engage with Metellus's army. Hirtulius kept up the campaign of constant guerrilla harassment, but was finally cornered at Segovia, and in a subsequent battle, Hirtulius was killed. Sertorius did not take the news of the death of his friend well. In a fit of anger, he stabbed the man who brought him the report, literally killing the messenger. Despite this setback, Sertorius continued to have his own successes against Pompey, using the young man's eagerness for glory against him. Pompey had been trying to avoid strict coordination with Metellus because Pompey was looking to get credit for defeating Sertorius all by himself. So, near Sucro, Pompey launched an attack on Sertorius, even though Metellus was just one day's march away. Combined, they would have overwhelmed the rebel forces, but by rushing into battle, Pompey allowed Sertorius to fight it out on even terms. After a full day in the field, the battle was yet undecided. Sertorius was planning on waking up the next morning and crushing Pompey, but then he heard Metellus had just arrived, doubling the size of the enemy army. So instead, Sertorius retreated. But he said of Pompey, But as for this boy, if that old woman had not come up, I should have given him a sound beating and sent him back to Rome. At this critical juncture in the war, Sertorius had to deal with a little PR crisis. In the midst of all his campaigning, his white doe went missing. He looked high and low but could not find the animal. Just as he was about to give up, a small search party located the missing animal and brought it to their general. Overjoyed, Sertorius then had a brilliant idea. 
he paid the men who found the dough to keep quiet about it. And then a few days later, while holding a large meeting, he ordered some of his men to release the dough. When she came up, when she ran up to Sertorius, Sertorius exclaimed that it was a miracle and that truly the gods would never abandon them. For the next full year, Sertorius continued to evade attempts by Pompey and Metellus to trap and defeat his rebel army. He fought battles only when it suited him, and he drove his enemies crazy. Metellus got so frustrated that he offered a bounty for Sertorius's head, and not a small one either, a hundred talents of silver and 20,000 acres of land. But no one took him up on the offer. I mean, who tries to kill a man who was obviously protected by Diana herself? Very fed up, Metellus finally managed to defeat Sertorius in battle. But at the conclusion of the battle, he was unable to prevent Sertorius from making good a retreat. But despite the fact that Sertorius had gotten away, Metellus decided to claim it as a major victory. So great was this victory that he announced that he didn't need to stay in Hispania anymore, and he withdrew, temporarily, to the peace and quiet of Gaul, where he celebrated. Pompey, meanwhile, was starting to feel a bit like Napoleon would feel in Egypt 2,000 years later. He had marched into Hispania expecting a famous victory that would earn him permanent international acclaim, and instead he was stuck out in this godforsaken province being led along by the nose. And it did not help his mood that the Senate was getting awfully stingy about resupply and reinforcements. Nor did it help his mood when he found out why— that far off in the east, King Mithridates was preparing to take another stab at conquering the province of Asia. The campaign against Mithridates promised to be a lucrative one, and it would bring whoever led the legions the international fame that Pompey craved. And of course, Pompey was not in the running to lead that campaign because he had foolishly rushed to take on the campaign in Hispania. He was stuck here. Now at this point, Sertorius found an unlikely ally, because, as I just said, far, far away in the east, King Mithridates is getting ready to take another stab at conquering Asia. He had heard about what Sertorius was up to in Hispania, and he wanted to make an alliance. Both men were enemies of Sulla, and they shared a common enemy in Sulla's heirs. By teaming up, they could drive the regime in Rome to ruin. Sertorius would then become the master of Italy, and Mithridates would get the province of Asia. But Sertorius never lost his fundamental Roman identity, and he actually rejected this offer. He told Mithridates' envoys that, sure, we can get together, but Asia is a Roman province, and don't you forget it. When Mithridates heard this, he was amazed and kind of worried. He said, this guy is dictating terms about the borders of Asia from a tent in Spain. Imagine what he might do if he ever does get control of Rome. But the king was still eager to ally with Sertorius, and so he signed a more limited deal. Mithridates sent Sertorius 3,000 talents of silver plus 40 ships. In exchange, Sertorius sent one of his top lieutenants plus a cohort of legionaries to coordinate with Mithridates and ensure that when the king went ahead and conquered Cappadocia and Bithynia, that he stayed out of Asia. If Sertorius won the war, they could figure out the rest from there. So the war in Hispania went on, and on, and on, and on. It went on for fully two more years, and each day, week, month, and year that Sertorius stayed in the field was a reminder to Rome that the civil war that had begun all the way back when Sulla returned from the first war against Mithridates was still not over. It was like being up 10-0 in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs, and the last hitter just keeps fouling off pitch 
after pitch after infinite pitch. The end of the story finally comes in 72 BC. And in the end, it did not come down to Metalus or Pompey beating Sertorius in the field. They never did that. Nor did it come down to them orchestrating his assassination. They were all finally delivered from this decade-long menace by Sertorius's own disgruntled subordinates, particularly the long-disgruntled Marcus Perpenna. Now, there are two versions of the story. Either Perpenna was an ungrateful malcontent, or Sertorius was becoming dangerously unstable. But whichever it was, the result was the same. Despite his almost nonstop run of success, a conspiracy opened up around Perpenna to assassinate Sertorius. The first move was for the officers who were in on this conspiracy to treat the locals under their command badly, and then when complaints came in to say, oh, I was just following Sertorius's orders. So this provoked revolts, which caught Sertorius off guard and it led him to order reprisals against those tribes who seemed to be spontaneously defying him, up to and including the murder of many of the hostages he had taken. Having sowed discontent between Sertorius and the locals, the next step was to bring in a fake messenger to the camp and have him report a made-up victory by one of Sertorius's subordinates. The conspirators then suggested a banquet to celebrate this made-up victory, and Sertorius said, yeah, sure, let's do it. At this banquet, they plied Sertorius to drink an unusual amount of wine, and then when the general got groggy and bored, they fell on him and stabbed him to death. Never beaten by his enemies, Quintus Sertorius could only be defeated by his friends. The coda to this long war is that Marcus Perpenna took over command of the army, and he promptly led it into a crushing and decisive defeat at the hands of Pompey. Not wanting to break with his reputation for being only in it for himself, when Perpenna was brought before Pompey, he brought with him the entire collected correspondence of the late Sertorius. Perpenna said that it contained incriminating letters from plenty of the most prominent men in Rome who had been writing Sertorius secret words of hope and encouragement, and who stood ready to aid him if Sertorius could ever figure out a way to re-enter Italy. In one of the more astute political acts of his life, Pompey accepted this pile of correspondence and threw it in the fire without even opening it. In doing so, Pompey not only saved Rome from what would have no doubt been a vicious new round of purges and political chaos, but he also secured the personal goodwill of all the men whose lives were on the line. It was a good move for Rome, and it was a good move for Pompey, which Pompey, of course, never made much of a distinction between anyway. Perpenna, on the other hand, was executed on the spot. So that brings Appendix 2 to a close. Hopefully, you have enjoyed this long overdue filling in of a giant hole in the History of Rome podcast, and been provided with some additional context for The Storm Before the Storm, if you happen to have read The Storm Before the Storm, which, geez, I hope you all did. But if you haven't, maybe these episodes will push you in that direction. It's always great to come back to the history of Rome, and there will indeed in the future be an Appendix 3. About what? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Mm-hmm.